podcast. I'm David. I'm Reed. Reed, I was wondering what to open this with. Um, I see you have your Boulder Boulder shirt on, so that's the one I'm going to pick. Okay. You got Boulder Boulder coming up in your training, so you can keep the audience up to date on your, uh, well, how my progress or, yeah. or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got started. I told you, uh, Myself and Doug Cox, the guy that managed me years ago, um, one of the finest human beings I've ever met, and was really happy to find out that he was coming up to uh, Colorado from Texas, made the move that we did a few years after us, but he's up here with his wife now, and they finished uh, finished uh, raising their, their, their two sons. Um, uh, they're, they're off in college now. But anyways, um, we had run what was called the Cowtown 10K uh, about 15 years ago, and... Uh, <coughs> We had some fun with it, obviously, being slightly competitive as I am, you know, uh, quickly challenged him and um, Doug always laughs at me. He knows I'll, I'll, I'll continue to bring this up as long as I live, but uh, I smoked him. <laughs> and then I got humbled myself at the post uh, with Christine. Um, oh, that's right. I yeah, forgot you guys yeah. did it. I got too confident after uh, my run with Doug and then uh, she put me in my place at Boulder Boulder. <laughs> Then I ran, I think, two years later with Miranda, and that was less competitive. Um, not because of Miranda, but just yeah, we chose <laughs> to just try to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, when I knew he was back up here, I was like, hell, you know, let's do it again. It's been 15 years. So we started our training last week and, um, yeah, still feeling a little bit, but not as much as I thought. I, I, did, I, I hung in there. It was only five miles compared to your, like, 50-mile, like, runs, but um, – got to start somewhere yeah well you guys uh 15 years ago i was wondering like you're not always the best with dates but sometimes you surprise <laughs> me with like anniversaries and stuff and how tight you are so were you the one that remembered it was 15 years since cowtown or was that no it was me yeah it was me yeah we had a couple lunches and obviously like everybody else the pandemic had just been difficult um for us to really have any kind of meaningful i'll say frequency certainly not facetime um but then you know, I'm trying to pivot a little bit into more cardio. You know, I got that through basketball and um, that's kind of faded, unfortunately for me. And so now I'm trying to find my way into running. It's just yeah. never been something until I met you. Part of it was like just <clears throat> inspired by your achievements, but also um, all the audio books. You know, it's like mm -hmm. um, now I can't imagine listening to music, which <clears throat> when I first met you, I was like, how the hell do you run and not listen to music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so that's been cool. It's been a nice outcome of this. Yeah. I feel like I couldn't do it because I'd feel, I get that like I'm not achieving, accomplishing right. <laughs> something if I'm not listening to an audio book or podcast or something. That said, since we added the uh, monitor to the home gym, now like uh, YouTube pops up and a lot of times it recommends music. So I find myself listening to more music than I ever have mm. on my runs because of the whatever, because I have a, a monitor in front of me. But I don't know. Uh, definitely, as the as the our driveway turns dry again or less icy, then I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll be back out and definitely have more podcast stuff. What do you think, Bob? Is a podcast, audiobook, or music guy? He seems like a music guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I. But I was gonna actually uh, do the segue from uh, from Doug because you had you didn't mention Doug by name during the interview, but Doug to me would like completely connect to to food for thought. He's uh, dying to hear the podcast. Oh. I, you know, after the run, we had lunch and I told him we we're having him on and he was like, that sounds incredible. And he's like, you know, tell me when we can hook up and do it on a Friday. I was like, soon, you know? Yeah. So yeah, Doug would love this. Cool. Well, um, 
Yeah. I mean, you and I have mentioned food for thought on a couple different podcasts, but this is the first time we've had Bob on. And I just thought it was, that was great. Like the guy has so much passion. It's interesting though. Like the only, the only conversations I've had with him before is when he's like giving the, uh, I was going to make a bad movie joke, but it was like, uh, what's like the Al Pacino, the NFL, like when he's doing the, he's coaching the team. The replacements. Is it the replace? I almost said the replacements, but then I, I backed out. Man, I think that has my nemesis, Keanu. It does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> has, has your enemy, Keanu. <laughs> but he, like, it's got a very, he's got a very good, you know, like. That's not it though. That's not the movie. No. Uh, no it's. Uh, and any given Sunday. Yes. Yeah. It was Oliver Stone. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 What is he doing making sports films? That was not a good choice for him. Oliver Stone. I still like it though. Mm. It's not the same, but I still, I still like it. But anyways, I feel like on hit on Fridays, Bob is giving like one of those speeches. Yeah. And this is the first time I've caught him in a more subdued state. Cause I've also wondered how the hell does he keep that up every Friday? I know. Like, um, the impassioned speech. So I'm glad to see that like he does have more than one, uh, I don't know. Gear. Gear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to ask him that, but you kind of got at it when you talked to him about pace. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so I just, but that was going to be one of my questions. It's like, clearly it's not rehearsed, but it, yeah. it sounds that way. It's that powerful, that yeah. good. And we've been there now at least a couple of times. I know I have. And it, and then, you know, it, it's similar, but not again, scripted. Um, and it's just truly like a experience just to, to be in the crowd and hear him get up there and, and pour out his heart each, yeah. each Friday. Um, it really charged me up. So that's what I look forward to, whether it's Doug or anybody else, like, um, and that's a big part of why we had him on is we just want to help spread the word, but, um, that by itself is worth it. Yeah. It's worth the experience. Just much just less to hear what, him. what yeah. the, what the good is that comes cause, out of it. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. The cause is obviously bigger than him, but so everybody will hear this during the episode, but just some high level numbers are they've, uh, they're now approaching their 10th anniversary for food for thought. They've, um, uh, food for thoughts goal is to provide meals for kids, um, um, through the weekend. So normally a lot of kids he's saying in, in poor neighborhoods don't, aren't able to, they eat only when they're at school and then they don't have anything when they get home. So he had heard that over the weekend, a lot of these kids don't eat, they go hungry. And so 10 years ago, he started, I guess he said with two schools, mm -hmm. two schools and now so. they're doing, uh, whatever, a hundred thousand dollars a month in, in meals. So that's 20,000 meals a month that they're doing. Yeah. Over 70 schools now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or is that he the said target? Over 70 yeah. Schools. I think 70, 72, something like that. Yeah. Um, so a really incredible program and it's just been through like sheer will and like never, never giving up. I was saying that to somebody last week when they're like, Oh, how's, you know, what, what do you attribute to digital success? And I was just like, just one step in front of the other and you never stop. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Probably how like a bodybuilder feels when <laughs> someone asks like, how'd you get those pecs? One, one, uh, uh, press after the other. Um, so anyways, it's really impressive what he's done. So I hope uh, everyone enjoys listening, but. Any other takeaways before we? I just think it's it? the ultimate story of paying it forward, you know, which fits well with obviously what we're trying to do, but we are just getting started with Fiona Ford and um, that's what introduced us to Bob and Food to Thought and some other uh, foundations, charities um, around, around the, uh, around Colorado. Um, but that, that's when we asked him, how does this all happen? You know, he's very humble, you know, he's like, yeah, um, I was a passionate guy and, the first couple of years, you know, probably carried it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. He didn't even say that. Yeah. Uh, but then it was just like, 
you know, people going and he said, I'm not as big on checks. I need those too. But I thought that was kind of poignant where he was like, I'm not as interested in meeting people. They're just there to cut checks. I, I really want folks to come down, experience it, then pay it forward and, and have somebody else, uh, you know, volunteer. So I thought that was super cool. And I've heard that from him during his Fridays too, which as he sort of acknowledges is a little bit of a marketing ploy. Cause if you come and feel it, the energy you might give two, the, two grand, instead of right. one grand. But at it's the true. same time, almost every other charity you speak to, they're like, like I, he mentioned uh, Volunteers of America and I used to do a lot of stuff for them and they would constantly tell me like, we don't really need the people as much as we need the money. Yeah. Um, and he's the only <laughs> one that I've ever heard of. It says Flip the opposite. That. Like I want, I want more people than I want the money, but yeah, good for him. Uh, yep. It's really, yeah. Just well, really it's a great one. Yeah. Definitely tune in and. Hopefully it's not the last time we talk to him. Like I said, I, I'd love to build a lasting partnership with him uh, as we get more and more committed to an organized, you know, kind of vision for Field of Ford. Yeah. I think totally. they should be a part of it. All right. Well, tune in. Okay, we're here with Bob Bell, and Bob, this you're the first time that we've ever restarted the episode for anybody, so that's how much clout you have with us. Our audio connection was a little bad, so um, anyways, you had told us uh, when we started off last time, I asked you what, how you like to refer to yourself, so you're the founder of Food for Thought, and uh, and then you were, yep. uh, you, uh, let's just have you give us the background on Food for Thought, how you got started, and where you guys are today. Yeah, I mean, food for thought, and, and you're correct, and thank you for asking. I, I, I load the term executive director and, and et cetera, because as we talk more, I'll, I'll tell you why that's not really applicable here. But yeah, I'm the founder, and, and founding it was uh, as simple as, you know, I, I belong to a Rotary Club um, as part of my service endeavor. Um, I've been in Rotary a lot of years, and part of their their outreach program was was working a backpack program, getting some underprivileged kids, underfed kids, up in Arvada, some food on the on the weekend, and um, they were supporting about sixty kids in a school full of about four hundred kids. And um, my job, because I drive a pickup truck, was to go to the Arvada food bank, pick up the food, drop it at the school. I just waved at everybody and, and went about my day. And um, the interesting part of it was that every time I went to that food bank, obviously, I, I got to know the director there. And uh, as we became friends, she finally just said to me, hey, Bob, you're better than this. And I said, well, what, what is it you want me to do? She said, well, you're always, you know, you're a North Denver native. You're, you know, you're always talking a big deal. You run your real estate business out of North Denver. You know, this problem in, in Arvada, you know, we got a handle on it um, as far as feeding these kids. But you know, in the city of Denver, the Denver public school system, this this hunger issue for little ones is, is running rampant and no one is addressing it. Um, well, you know, it's kind of a, I couldn't really fathom it, but, you know, like everything, you, you hear it with a, you take it with a grain of salt. And um, concurrently, I mean, I happened to be sitting down at my brother's bar having a, a couple tequilas and I was sitting next to a gal that was... Um, you know, I was just, I'm sure I was chatting her up, telling her what, uh, what a rock star I was by uh, feeding these kids in Arvada. And she just looked me square in the eye and said, look, I, I'm at Columbian Elementary. I'm at 40th and Federal, which is a school that I drive by every single day on the way to my office. And uh, she said, I have 300 kids in that school. 
and we are 95% free and reduced lunch, which means my population is is in abject poverty. And if you are serious about what you're talking about, why don't you put your big boy pants on and um, do something about my kids in this school? And uh, obviously that took the tequila buzz right away. And uh, uh, I said, yeah, I mean, what, show me what, what's up. So she said, come to my school uh, on Monday morning. And I did just that. And um, she just introduced me to some of the kids that, that would roll into her classroom. And I met the principal and some of the administration and, and most of the teachers. And um, I guess I would say that was, you know, the life changing moment for me because you, when you see, hear, learn something like this, you simply cannot turn away and act like you don't know it. It's hard to unknow it. So um, that was kind of mentally the compelling moment for me. So I, you know, I ran back to my my Rotary Club and said, "Man, I I think this is something we should look at." And they were ridiculously supportive. Gave us a check for thirty thousand bucks. I grabbed. Uh, a couple of my rotary buddies and we went back and got back into that tequila bottle and we drafted up food for thought literally on the back of a napkin. And, um, the components of that, that was, that was March of 2012 and the components, um, you know, I'm ecstatic to say that the same principles that we started it with now, just about two, three days short of 10 years ago, are the same as they were in 2012. Well, that's incredible. I didn't know I was going to ask the year, but 10 years is a, is a, yeah, we almost a, hit it on the head. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, oh, yeah. No, Bob, we, we planned this. This is why we have you on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we damn near made it. We damn near made it, but we're, we're close enough for my work. Yeah. And so our experience with you guys is that every Friday morning, um, you guys, uh, meet at, at, at under um, an overpass in Denver. And then um, you usually, it feels like have a hundred people there. I'm sure you could give us more details on volunteers and then uh, several thousand bags of, um, of food get packed. And then you guys haul those over to the, to different schools. So why don't you give us a little bit of an idea around scale? And I think also famously, you guys didn't miss any, any Fridays through, through the pandemic. So yeah, just give us a sense of scale. Yeah, so yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So our, our first pack date was indeed um, on St. Patrick's Day, 2012, and we had uh, that school, Columbian Elementary, and one more down in uh, right below the stadium on 12th and Decatur called Fairview. So all told, we had about 500 kids. And and when I mentioned the principles of Food for Thought that were drafted up on a napkin, they they are this. Um, we addressed schools. Uh, at that time in Denver, we'll talk about some other places we are now, but that are, are 95% and higher free and reduced lunch population. And for your listeners, what that, what that simply means is that when those children register, the average income is verified for that family of four of 29K or below. So indeed, it is abject poverty, you know, like under our noses. So we target those schools, those, those two schools were that population. Um, and our, our principles that we set forth, when I worked at, on that Arvada program, I mean, God bless them, that's, that's a great effort to get 60 bags into the hands of 60 kids. But that, too, was a Title I school. And those 400 kids in there 
there wasn't much difference between the the needy and the unneedy, if you will. Um, and they employed something where a kid would have to sign up to get the bag. Well, you know, we just thought that was BS because a you're asking the hungriest of the hungry to step forward, and one that's rather stigmatizing to that child, and and b in a lot of cases, a child's not going to stand up for that because he doesn't want to be stigmatized as one of those kids. So when we decided to do it, um, heck, we had 30 grand, so why not spend it like drunken sailors, right? So we decided, we just decided we're going to do every kid in both of these schools. So, so as to erase any chance that there's going to be a stigma, we just wanted to change the culture and say, look, we're all in this together. We all get this food. We all partake in the generosity of the community. So every kid gets a bag. Now, we're not so ignorant as to think that there aren't some kids in there that don't need it. But we also know and have certainly learned that, you know, those kids know best if they don't need the bag, which one of their classmates could use their bag. And we just let that kind of work itself out within the walls of that building. And it's worked out beautifully because... We don't, you know, we're not smart enough, nor do we have the time to try to figure out exactly, you know, how many bags and blah, blah, blah. This is not important to us. What's important to us is get the maximum amount of food into that building where we know the need is great and, and just be consistent with that. So we, you're correct. We, we endeavor to do that every single Friday. Um, so that, you know, there was just no gap. And I, I mentioned that. You know, I, I got to meet with the principal of Columbian Elementary at the very onset. And she, you know, very, very good lady, still very involved with us today. She comes down and packs most Fridays. She's retired now. Um, but, you know, she looked me straight in the eye and said, look, you know, I've seen a joker like you before. You know, you come in here, you got a little bit of money. You're going to change the world. You got these grandiose plans. You know, you're going to bring in uh, Nine News and talk about what a, what a wild changing thing this is. And then six months later, you walk in here and you say, gosh, we ran out of money. We, we couldn't feel the energy. You know, we just, it wasn't as much fun as we thought, blah, blah, blah. She said, look, if, you, if you're going to be that jackass, don't even start this thing. Like, like, don't let these kids down. The thing you have to understand about these kids, Bob, is that, hey, look, they live in a world of failed promise after failed promise after failed promise. Don't, don't be a failure to them. And, you know, fortunately, the guys in my crew, very much took that to heart and said, well, if that's, if that's the game, then game on. Well, I got one more question before I pass it to Reed, but, um, I, you, last time that I went to one of your, uh, events on, on a Friday, I think you had said that you guys had to raise a hundred thousand dollars a month to feed, you know, the schools that you're in. So how many schools, how many kids, how many meals do you guys do a month? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's obviously, um, and let me just, let me just add one thing before I answer your question. So feed every kid and the other component of food for thought, which I think we're most prideful of is that, you know, we don't have a dime of overhead in this program. So um, we refuse to have an employee. We refuse to own a truck. We refuse to have a building. Um, if we have, you know, any expense that's ancillary to the, to the production of power sacks, uh, we quite honestly just lean on our buddies and say, look, you, you gotta, you gotta cough up a little dough. And then we meet, you know, people like Digible and we say, look, you know, um, you know, kind of a pay to play situation for across most of our volunteers to, you know, kind of, kind of lend us a few bucks. We build that bag for $5. Uh, 
So now to answer your question, over the course of these 10 years, we've taken it from those two schools and 500 kids. Today, we're in 72 different schools um, and 10,000 kids. So we're producing, you know, 20,000 bags uh, every single month. So your, your math is good, better than mine. You know, we got a $100,000 mortgage every single month at the Food Bank of the Rockies. So, you know, we're, we've become professional beggars, that's for sure. But, you know, when you, when you can tell people that every penny of that $5 bill is going nowhere, but into that bag for that kid, um, you know, the community has rallied beyond my wildest imagination to make sure we have the financial wherewithal to never to honor that promise not to let these kids down. <laughs> well, I guess while we're on this thread, I'm curious what percentage of that hundred thousand ish is coming from businesses versus uh, just individuals that that want to find a way to help out. You know, whether it's a irregular donation or whether it's something that they've just signed up, kind of subscription style donation. But yeah, if you could just give us a little more insight on on how the the money's come to comes together each month. Yeah, you know, math is not my thing. Um, and I don't, to be honest with you, I don't really track the percentage of where it comes from. I can tell you in the, in the day, you know, it was, uh, it was all $5 bills and it was all just me leaning on you and you leaning on each other and getting us a hundred bucks. Yeah. As, as the need, as the need has gotten greater, you know, we've gotten more aggressive about, um, you know, writing some grants, and we'll talk about that in the COVID environment. But um, what we really found was a magic, much like I think Digible has has realized that this has become, you know, a must see, must do team building effort. So where you can bring down, I don't care if you're the CEO, I don't care if you're the damn president of the United States. When you come down there. You know, you're wearing snow boots and gloves just like everybody else. So these companies, you know, come down there and whether it's an admin or upper level management, everybody's, you know, on the same playing field and putting something together that's going to make a tangible difference on that day they're there. That food's going home that day. So it, it just it just caught fire in the corporate community. And along with that fire came a lot of funds. So people were willing to you know, start writing us checks for $5,000 and $10,000. And, and that's what made our volunteer effort so strong because, well, we, I had one CEO of key equipment that was, uh, well, he is involved with us. And he said, you know, Bob, at the end of the year, I asked my team, you know, what do we want to do as far as, you know, team building and our give back day. And they're like, you know, rap trips or going skiing or what do you want to do? Like, no, hell no. Let's go down and do that food thing because, you know, everybody gets, be with everybody and um, it creates a common ground that I think most companies that are with us now say you know how many spots can we get well now you make Reed feel guilty because he's planning a happy hour for Digipal on Thursday so (laughs) (laughs) I'll make (laughs) I'll make I'm a fan of happy hour yeah both things can be true at the same time yeah there's nothing wrong with some green beer on St. Patty's Day right Um, amen amen so is it, uh, I, I don't know if I caught this, but is it K through 12 or do you guys, um, is it more geared towards like elementary or middle school um, or yeah, is it full gamut? Yes, really. Excellent question that nobody ever asked me. So it, it started out, um, 
well, obviously the two schools where we were in were elementary, which means ECE, which is early childhood education, which is a three-year-old through fifth grade. Um, and that was our primary focus because those are the schools that learned about us. And that's just somehow organically how we grew. Um, since then, as we, as we've come on to so many other schools, um, we've added, I think we're in nine high schools right now. And in that high school, uh, we do a completely different model where, you know, uh, again, back to the stigmatization thing, it's just a little hard for a high school student to, you know, uh, receive a bag and carry that bag around. I mean, I think the pride gets in the way a little bit. So in those schools, we've created kind of a baby 7-Eleven in not much more than a closet where, you know, our, our goods are stocked up in there and, and a kid can just on his way out literally, you know, hit the uh, pantry and load up their personal backpack with what they need to take home. Um, so that's been beautiful. Um, so again, in the 72 schools, nine of those are um, high schools, uh, four or five are K through um, eight, but we have not been able to crack the nut of of middle schoolers, uh, junior high, if you will, those, those kids are just too proud to do it. And, uh, they, they just, they just won't, they just won't take the food. So, you know, it's just the way it is. Even if they're kids that have been with us in the, in the early years and we catch them later on the high school years, that middle school thing is, uh, is just a little bit tough to crack. So it's, it's primarily, uh, an ECE through fifth grade program and then jumps to high school. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Sad, but also on some level, I guess I respect yeah. the the pride that some of these kids have. Yep. Um, but when it comes to survival, you know, it, it, you you got to eat something. Um, so the I'm curious on the the goods themselves. Um, you know, when we were down there, I mean, I couldn't tell you off memory. Like I know, I remember uh, some of the cookies and stuff, but just how much that's changed too. How if you've been able to. I guess broaden that as well. I mean, obviously you've expanded a ton over the last 10 years, but as far as the food providers or the brands that are, are coming in, um, how does that all work? And is it just on rotation or has it been pretty consistent for the last few years? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. Uh, great question. So since, since day one, when we, when we first designed food for thought, the, the, the suggestion was made, or I guess the direction was given to us, hey, you've got to partner with the Food Bank of the Rockies. And if you don't know anything about the Food Bank of the Rockies out there at I-70 and Havana, they are miracle workers. If there was no connection to Food Bank of the Rockies, there would be no food for thought. In fact, there probably wouldn't be many food banks or food pantries around this town because they supply the balance of them. Um, so at our budget, when I say five bucks, if you can fathom that, they allow us to put a bag together that's 12 to 15 items every single week. And we have never, I don't think we've ever broken that $5 barrier. So from day one and through today, we've got a couple uh, ladies that volunteer with us that, you know, they're moms and they act like moms and they buy like moms and they get on the website and they go through um, what's available in our quantity. So we try to keep every bag identical. So one kid's not saying, Hey, how'd you get the Oreos? And I didn't. Um, <laughs> so there are, there are all those bags are identical. So we're buying, you know, in essence, you know, 5,000 items, 15 deep every single week, um, to make sure that the bags are a, as complete and large as they can be, as nutritious as they can be. 
Um, and obviously, we're just trying to ensure that we can get as much in there as we can possibly get. So um, your question about, you know, the evolution of it, um, you know, we've been, you know, begging um, for the ability to, you know, let these kids and well, let me just back up and say the intent of the bag is to make sure a child, a young child can eat for the weekend. So there's always enough in that bag that would what you call hand snacks, whether that's, you know, even ramen noodles or fruit cups or pop tarts or granola bars so that, you know, that most of these kids don't have the infrastructure in their world to have meals prepared for them on the regular. So we make sure that's in there. And then, of course, there's enough in that bag that if there is that family or additional siblings, that there's, you know, hamburger helper and pasta and sauces and canned chicken and canned tuna and the like so that a meal can be together. This year, we actually got the food bank to start providing us a good portion of the bag that turns into a recipe. And we, along with the food bank, we produce every week in the bag a recipe sheet that's written in Spanish and in English that says, look, you take out these these eight items out of the bag and you put it in a bowl, you're going to have a casserole or you're going to have a burrito bowl or something like that. So that's been like nirvana for us just to think that that's going to happen. And I'll tell you where that's going with the next step, you know, when we talk further. But um, that's, that's the intent is to keep that bag just as chock full as we can get it to satisfy as many of those members of that family that we can get to on a weekly basis. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, um, what about, uh, holidays? Um, is there ever been, I guess, a scenario where, uh, I'll randomly say like a Chick-fil-A or something. I don't know if that's a good example. But I was just thinking these kids obviously don't, don't get Thanksgiving dinners, you know, the way, uh, you know, their peers or other kids in schools do. So I didn't know if that's ever happened. Um, you know, around a Christmas or, or a Thanksgiving, um, where you, you went outside of the box, if you will. Uh, you know, I just think that that'd be also a, a, a great, I don't know, just such a great thing to do. It just, it's hard enough to hear that they can't, they're not getting any food, but, um, you know, just wishing that during the holidays, they'd, they'd be able to get something special. Yeah, you're right. It's hard enough and it's, it's heartbreaking at the same time, but I guess, you know, the 10 year lesson would be that, you know, we just, we really stay in our lane and we're very myopic about this thing because, again, we're all volunteers and we've yeah. got a very, very little amount of time to do anything. So we, we don't do anything like that off grid. Yeah. Um, we try to load them up, you know, uh, ahead of a, knowing what you just described and you described it accurately. We try to load them up with as much as we can get them. But I'll tell you one funny story. Like it was the second year and I had some friends in Boulder that, um, you know, wanted to donate frozen turkeys. And um, it's, I guess it's really not funny, but it was a little funny. Um, so it's two o'clock in the afternoon on Friday and we're at Greenlee Elementary at 11th and LaPan. And, you know, here come these Boulderites with uh, a trailer full of frozen turkeys. And the <laughs> parents are, you know, the parents are coming up to pick up the kids. And I'm out there. They had some volunteers in the school from VOA, Volunteers of America, we started handing out these turkeys and it was really clear, really quick that they didn't have a clue what that was. Um, you know, wow. there's a lot of cultural issues and, you know, here's this frozen turkey. And we looked at each other it's like, man, you better run in there and start printing off some recipes because these are going to go home and they're going to rot 
<laughs> on the countertop or they're going to be, they're going to be used as doorstops. You know what I mean? So, um, there, there's a significant cultural issue and the same thing happened. We were the beneficiary of an urban garden downtown. It was an entire city block. And, you know, we bought, uh, bib overalls and pitchforks and we went down and we gardened that thing for two years. But the, the truth is, um, when we took the fresh produce over to the schools, it was not well received. Again, they just by and large don't have the knowledge that says, what is this? Does it taste good? And how, how will I consume it? Um, you know, it's a crazy thing, but I could take you to a lot of our schools at lunchtime. There's a, there's a salad bar line that you and I would pay to eat at. And there's a traditional food line with more cultural foods. And, you know, for the vast majority, those salad bars go in the dumpster because, mm-hmm. you know, A, A, they're kids and B, they just don't know how to do it. So we, we just kind of stay with what we do and keep it, keep it trying to get them as much food as they can. And, and again, the, the, you know, these kids that, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too sentimental or emotional or deep into this, but they just don't, I didn't grow up with much guys. Um, I, I come from a family of seven kids and we didn't have a lot, but you know, I had parents and we had a roof over our head and I sure as heck had something to eat when I got home. And for these kids, it just doesn't roll like that. So, you know, a lot of these kids live in motels, of, you know, along federal and Sheridan and Colfax, the school buses and DPS actually, you know, go to those locations to pick them up. So, you know, heck, we worry about whether or not they even have a can opener if we're sending home green beans in a can. So we just we just try to keep it really approachable, I guess, um, for the average client uh, kid that we that we that we want to love up on. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted you to dive deeper into. I remember the last event you had sort of opened my eyes. I didn't know that people were living out of hotels or motels, and you had. Uh, basically mentioned at, at the time, it felt like there was a significant number of kids. So if you have any figures around that, that, that would be good. Cause I, I think a lot of our, a lot of our customers are not uh, actually in the Denver Metro, uh, Bob, that's something maybe we should have let you know. Uh, but if I, you know, when I was moving to Denver, I was coming from New York and I was like, well, of course, New York city has a, has a homeless problem uh, or an unhoused problem, I guess is now the proper language. And before that I was in San Francisco, which again has a lot of unhoused folks. And uh, so coming to Denver, I just didn't see it as prominently, uh, particularly when it came to kids. Uh, and so when you started mentioning that a lot of folks are living out of hotels to your point, then it's like, well, what are they going to have a, maybe a microwave or something? Right. So you can't, when you talk about the Turkey, it's not like there, a lot of these folks have an oven that they, that they can put this in, or if you were to send them with rice and beans or something, it's not the easiest thing. So, um, if you wouldn't mind just giving us some color around, uh, I guess some of those surprising figures about the, or whatever you can tell us about folks that are living in, uh, in motels. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I guess, I would say, and I, and I sense that you guys would agree if it's one, that's just one too many. I don't have exact figures. And, and here's, here's the other crazy thing about this whole thing, right? Like I get asked all the time about the socioeconomic, you know, how is this happening? Blah, blah, blah. Fellas. I don't know. I'm a realtor, right? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But you know, what I do know is that, you know, even in my profession and, and in your, your profession, so many of the places, you know, Yes, they live in a motel because the state will give them a voucher for 30 days. When that moves that, that when that expires, they move to the motel next door on a fresh voucher. 
then they move back to the other one because you can only stay there for 30 days. So it just becomes this weird hopscotch. But even bigger than that is just the housing issue in general. I mean, we're living in a you know place now, like my practice is in North Denver. Um, what were houses that could contain these families? What were apartment buildings that could contain these families are not even there. I mean, they're being scraped and replaced on a daily basis within blocks of these schools. When I went to Cheltenham Elementary at the start of this school year, right, and it, 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 the registration for these kids isn't probably like you or I, you know, we used to register for school in May for the next year. And they would be expecting, you know, your little Fanny to be there in August. When you go to these schools, it isn't like that. When they have the opening day of school, they open the doors and here come the kids. And where those kids have been or have been for the summer is an unknown thing. Last year, Cheltenham was low on enrollment. They endeavored to go out with their staff and look for those kids. And, you know, the, the percentage of doors that were no longer there because they had been scraped all along Colfax through the whole Sloan's Lake, Sloan's Lake area, you know, their houses aren't there anymore. And where there are houses, you know, the rent has been raised to 2500 bucks a month, and there's four or five families trying to trying to find a place to lay their head, you know, just to try to make rent work. So it is a very, very over my pay grade complex problem um, that's just being exacerbated by what's going on, you know, from a real estate perspective in Denver. But, you know, right now in Denver, um, you know, enrollment, I believe you'll find at DPS is down like 20%. And, you know, when you start thinking about that number in the big scale of all those schools and no one knows where those kids are. And, you know, what we do know is they're not in school, which means for me, we're not feeding them. Right. It's not that like 20% of that, of the population moved out of Denver uh, to explain that. In fact, you just have more folks going, moving to Denver. I think uh, you, uh, it was oh, okay not to have numbers. I was, um, that thing that you described about the housing voucher, I think will connect a lot with our audience because they're, they're familiar with that. Um, and the fact that I think what really struck me was the, just imagining um, you had mentioned about the school bus has to pull up to a hotel or a motel and then they'll, uh, oh shoot, the kid's not here. It, they went to, they're at another one because their housing vows are turned over or whatever. So um, it just, like you said, it's, it's just hard to comprehend that it feels like more people aren't talking about it, but that's why, you know, that's why we appreciate you doing what you're going to, what you're doing. Yeah, I was going to ask about the pandemic. Um, my sister, I mean, it, this isn't, a, I don't know, a great, I guess, parallel or thing to draw off of, but she's in social work, um, family therapist, and she actually is in New York, works with a lot of abject poverty. Um, and, you know, the story she tells me, you know, uh, speaking of getting sentimental or emotional, which I'm prone to do, I'll try not to, uh, talking through this, but, you know, it's, it's really difficult to hear. Um and proud of the work that she's doing. But she said, you know, during the pandemic for a lot of these kids, it, it, it was the worst possible, you know, uh, experience because school is their sanctuary. It was, it was an escape for them. A lot of times from abuse, it was a, it was a way for them to get fed. Um, and you know what that did to them, their hope, um, you know, was, was really hard, uh, to deal with and still being dealt with. So to the extent that, that you could share would want to like, um, and I'm not looking, you know, for us to turn this negative or something, but just um, how, 
how did things change? Did they change at all uh, through the pandemic, other than obviously trying to make sure you still had the volunteers, which is a great story that you did. But yeah, just if you can close in on any, uh, well, just what the impact was or has been for, for you guys uh, since since it started. Yeah, well, it, it, you described it beautifully from New York to Denver. Um, if you can imagine, that was that was two years ago yesterday. Um, when we closed the schools, it was March 13th of 2020. And I will never forget the day. I mean, it was a rainy day here in Denver. We had just gotten the word and I don't even know how we even learned about the schools closing. I mean, I think it was a day before, you know, and, you know, two or three, two or three things happened, you know, to food for thought and, um, some good, not, and some bad. Um, but you know, that was the day we had, we had a, no, we had two or three days notice that the schools were going to close. And so we did a double pack of every school that we had. We delivered to every school in our program. Uh, we were out delivering food, what we normally do at eight in the morning. We were out delivering until four in the afternoon um, to make sure, because, you know, it was going to be two weeks to flatten the curve. Um, ha ha. Um, so um, we were going to get enough food in there so that when those kids came back, they were going to find a bag. Um, and then obviously, you know, the unfortunate part for us was, you know, I lost a lot of friends of food for thought, you know, because, you know, we're in a global pandemic and, you know, like I said before, I'm not the brightest, uh, the sharpest tool in the shed, but I didn't know what that meant. And, you know, so we were having some conversations around what's going to happen on March 20th and, you know, are we, you know, are we going to continue to do food for thought? And, and you guys know me now for a few minutes. The answer was, hell yeah, we're going to do it. I mean, what, 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 what could we possibly not do for these kids given what we're now facing? But a lot of people didn't agree with that. So, you know, we didn't know what pandemic was. We didn't know what PPE was. Um, and we simply said, look, on March 20th, we're just going to show up and do what we do. And if, and if the community doesn't, you know, arrive and resound with this, then we'll, we'll get it. We'll get the message that Super Thought has to do whatever it has to do, pausing wise for this. And typical of the Food for Thought community, we had a hundred people down there on the 20th. And, um, you know, we, we just figured, well, then we're going to figure out how to get as much food together. And again, we didn't, you know, we couldn't find masks. If you remember the time, I mean, nobody could get access to masks. We were driving around on the weekends and, there were ladies that were sewing masks and leaving them outside in the mailbox milk boxes for us to pick up. Um, Woody Creek distillers up in uh, Aspen was, I don't know what the hell they were brewing up. It looked like vodka and it came in vodka bottles, but we were dumping it on our hands and, you know, calling it sanitizer. So, uh, you know, uh, we just, we just continued to rock and roll. Uh, and I don't care what your politics are, what we did to those kids uh, for the last two years is criminal. And, you know, we, we kicked them out on the street and you're, you described it exactly right. School to these kids is, is their home. It's where they get told, I love you when they come to school. It's where they get a hug. It's where they see an adult that cares for them. It's where they see their friends. It's where they eat, you know, breakfast. It's where they eat lunch. It's where it's warm. It's where it's safe from whatever the caustic environment they come from is. And we just threw them out on the street and said, yeah, here's a Chromebook and I hope you can turn it on and I hope this password is in Spanish and we'll see you next year in fourth grade. Well, that was two years ago. And, um, you know, again, I, I don't know 
um, what the facts are, but I can tell you that right now in those school buildings, it is a very caustic environment where, you know, for the last two years, and especially this year, you know, the absentee, if you can imagine, as you said, you know, can you imagine the school bus going there and not find the kid? But can you imagine being a school teacher and out of the 10 kids you have, two, two different ones are absent every day, and yet you're supposed to catch this kid up from what he left as a third grader and make sure he's now capable of getting into the fifth grade? I mean, it's, it's just sheer idiocy, in my opinion. So, you know, now we've got all this kind of conflict where parents versus teachers and mass, you know, the whole thing um, is, is just, it's unlike any we've ever experienced and we're going to experience the rest of my living breath on this planet. But what I can tell you is that, you know, Food for Thought never failed those kids once. We haven't missed a Friday since March of 2012. We didn't miss one damn Friday through the pandemic either. When the schools closed, we just had to... I mean, the last thing I ever wanted to do was ever get involved with the political machine that is the school district. But, you know, they opened up all these grab and go sites where they thought they were they were within a mile of every school and every kid. Um, and that that was 83 sites. And we just started supporting all those 83 sites where kids could come or their families could come and get, you know, hot breakfast or hot lunch and then take away our food as well. I don't I don't tease myself nor you to say that I think every kid got the bag, but I know I didn't get any bags back. And we were putting bags out on a record pace during that entire um, situation to make sure that as much food got into that community as we could possibly get there. Um, so, I mean, that, that was the testament to it now, but you know, as we come back, I never had a sense how, how horrible the post COVID hangover was going to be. I mean, what's going on now, again, the absenteeism and just the general, um, the teachers are overworked. They're very, you know, I don't want to say they're angels, right? But, you know, food, handing out the food at the end of the day, and that's all they have to do has become a bit of a chore. So we're having to really, you know, be a little more staunch about, hey, look, it's the kids, it's the kids, it's the kids, get them the damn food. Um, so, you know, we, we're just, you know, we're tough about it, and um, we have, we just keep it, as I said earlier, very, very singularly focused on those children. You mentioned uh, earlier when we were talking about fundraising that uh, writing grants, it sounded like it become something post-COVID. So how has the, I guess, the fundraising environment changed for you guys? Yeah, it's changed, you know, pretty amazingly. Um, you know, we... We, we were dabbling in grants and we had some, you know, I would say moderate success over the years in writing them. But, you know, we found during COVID that, you know, well, I mean, a lot of people nationwide, um, a lot of family foundations, a lot of corporate foundations simply couldn't believe we were still in operation. I think across the country, a vast majority of operations like this just folded it up, you know, because they're tied to a mothership, they're tied to you know, some government agencies said you, you, you can't do this, you can't do that. We didn't. We just didn't. We didn't play that game. So we were able to just tell people, yeah, we, we are feeding the kids, and concurrently, um, they were giving us, uh, you know, our our award rate for grant writing um, skyrocketed, and we were able to, you know, put enough money aside to make sure we could go at a larger clip every single Friday through the pandemic over the last two years. 
Well, that's terrific. Um, I'd like to like zoom out for a minute. Um, when you talked about just 10 years ago this week is when this, when this happened to you and you had mentioned the vision hadn't changed that much, but something Reed and I really struggle with, but, uh, I'll say myself personally is how much is like, how much, how far do we go? How much do we go? Cause uh, I can just imagine with yourself when you're so close to these stories, if I was, if I was you and I was falling short one, one Friday, I feel like I'd be opening up my own uh, checkbook, but obviously there's limited amount of means that you can do with that. So I'm just wondering how you, how you pace yourself, um, to, to have built something so large, you know, brick by brick over 10 years. But, uh, yeah, I think the pacing would be really helpful for me personally, because it's hard to know how much we, you know, give back, invest, or, you know, do with these type of types of endeavors. But it, it you know, it doesn't matter that much to me anyways, if we do something one time, it matters is more of like that lasting impact and how it continues to live on. So any advice you can give on how, how you've paced yourself? Well, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I get asked that all the time and I think I'm, I think I'm answering your question, but you know, people ask me all the time, how do you, how do you, how do you do it every damn week? Like, how do you, how do you keep on it? Well, it's gone way beyond me. I have a, a group of what is the food for thought family who has all picked up a piece of this from an operational standpoint, whether it's coordinating trucks. I mean, if you can imagine we have a 53 foot semi and six box trucks, you know, that are all donated to us. Whenever I call them, they're there. Um, there's so many people that are just picking the ball up and, and moving it one yard downfield that, you know, yeah, I get to do good things like this and I get to be the mouthpiece, you know, because I do know the history of it. But, you know, when they ask me how do I do it, I, I don't know how I ever did my life without it. It is the most rewarding thing I I could ever have imagined. And I, I don't feel it's anything I'm doing. I was just meant to be where I am in it. Um, it had to happen this way. I don't know why. I, I, again, I don't know what I did before. I must have spent way too much time on a bar stool. But, you know, there is, there is time for it. My personal business couldn't be better. Um, but, you know, my love of what I have found there, I could not do enough for food for thought or these kids. And if you ever would have told me 10 years ago that we'd be talking to you, that we'd be talking about 70 kids, that we'd be talking about a food budget of $1.2 million a year. I, there is, I will last until the end of day, but here we are. And, you know, while it's both, you know, it's exciting that we're in that many schools, it's also very sad, right? That, that there's that many schools that have that level of poverty in, in our backyard in this cow town where we're all bragging about all this good stuff and the price of homes and blah, 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 blah. And this, this, this underbelly of hunger exists like it exists. I mean, it's it's embarrassing as a native from here. I, it, it embarrasses me, and if that doesn't you know get your ass out of bed in the morning to do it, then you're then you shouldn't be doing it because when you know it's out there, you're not going to sleep right, you're not going to shave right until you do something about it. Yeah, I think though, just to give yourself some credit, because uh, I, I heard um, I heard the um, an interview with the founder of Black Lives Matter, and she was saying that. Um, it did not go as well while she was there, like trying to build up the organization. It was after that she left that it really exploded. Um, and it, all I'm saying is like starting a business is hard enough when you're trying to do it for profit, let alone like something that's, 
not for profit. And as you said, you don't have any ho- overhead. So I just think that there are some lessons, um, you know, from your journey about how other organizations can do it. Cause to your point about the broken promises, it, there's, you know, a graveyard of other projects that people have started that have not gone so well. So there's de- obviously been something right, but I can also appreciate how you're in it, you know, day to day. And it, it may be hard to even take a, take a minute to reflect on, on some of those learnings just because you're, you're worried about the next Friday. Yeah. And I, and I, and I appreciate that. And I, you know, I, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, you know, even like we talked about at the very onset, when people say, well, are you the executive director? I'm like, oh, hell no. When people say it's a nonprofit, to be honest with you, as ignorant as it sounds, I don't even really know what that means. I know we don't make any money. Okay, are we a nonprofit? Yeah, I guess we are. Are we a 501c3? Yeah, yeah, we're a 501c3. Did we do a 1099? Yeah, we did a 1099 because my college roommate said we better have one. So, I mean, that, 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 that's what we do. But in no way, shape, or form, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, look, you you can't do this unless you have an executive. You've got to have, you've got to have, you yeah. don't have to have it. And, that, you know, that maybe that is the lesson. Maybe that is the model. But, you know, if there is enough, and excuse me, passion and give a shit for what you're doing, good luck stopping. What's going to stop it? Someone going to run out of gas on it? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I think that actually is um, the magic and um, whether you fully, I guess, acknowledge, take responsibility for it, um, but is keeping things, as you were saying, really kind of, I think you used the word myopic, but very narrow and focused, not moving outside of your lanes and then having no overhead. Um, And so I was going to ask you how much... you know, you've been able to inspire outside of Colorado. I know that's not obviously, as we just talked about narrowing the focus and, and that's not necessarily what is, you know, the vision of this, but it just seems to me that this can happen and I'll say should be happening um, in a lot of different cities, a lot of different markets. And so I didn't know if if through the process and the journey you, you've had a chance to I guess, uh, connect with, with other folks or chapters or similar entities like in other cities, or if you found that, you know, the overwhelming majority are tethered, I think, as you said, to the mothership or to government agencies and that food for thought is, is truly unique, not just in Colorado, but across the country. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of these interviews. I've never had questions be so perfectly asked as you're doing it. Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, this, this backpack program thing, I, I think it's important to understand this is surely nothing that we started, right? This, this concept has been around the country as far as I've been here, you know, from down south in the seventies. So, you know, the, the difference is what you said. When we do without overhead and we do a hundred percent coverage in every school. Um, we've had a lot of people and I, I shouldn't say a lot over the years. I've had a dozen. People from other cities contact me and say, okay, how do you do it? And, you know, about halfway through, they hang up on me because, you know, typically the first question is, well, how do I make $100,000 a year do it? I'm like, I don't know. You know, if, if you can go sell your program and say the first hundred grand is for my salary, well, then you're better than me. But so do it. If that's what it takes, do it. Um, right now, you know, I got a big national award with the, uh, uh, National Association of Realtors, and that gave us some national exposure. And we have actually have some folks in Louisiana that are, you know, three months into running Food for Thought in Louisiana, and they're doing it our way, and they're they're moving up the school ladder. 
so that's the first, that's the only one I can tell you is tangible. But just to be very truthful, most of the conversations that I have, you know, people just, they just can't get their arms around that you've got to ask, you got to beg, you got to ask for money. That's hard for a lot of people. And for us, it's not. Yeah. Well, I think, again, a lot of it has to do with you, but obviously the network that you've now developed and, um, you know, the, the energy is what I was trying to communicate, uh, to a friend of mine. Um, I used to work for him years ago in Texas and now we're both in Colorado. And I said, you got to go down there on Friday. Um, you got to hear this guy speak. You got to be there to really, and what's amazing to me is, um, you know, I thought a little bit, I'll say going in that, you know, it'd be more powerful if you could actually see the kids get the lunches, you know, get the food. Um, and that that might be needed, I guess, in order to continue to get the support you're getting. And then, uh, it, it took me about five minutes, um, again, not trying to prop you up too much, but just listening to you and then being around, you know, our colleagues, our friends doing it together. It's like, I don't need to see, you know, the, it actually get taken off the truck and put in the school. And I'm sure if I, you know, spent some time in your social media and your site, you know, I'd, I'd see some of that stuff, but, um, it, it truly was just, uh, a remarkable experience. It, it, you know, it hit deep and that's the kind of thing that, uh, as I was saying, you'd think in these other markets that wouldn't, wouldn't be that hard. Um, my sister's been a nonprofit for 25 years in California and San Francisco. And most of her work's been pointed at, at the education side of things, which obviously is connected to this whole thing. But, um, and she's been out there busting her butt and she always says, you know, fundraising is the hardest part of it. Um, but then, you know, sometimes it comes through and she'll get these big checks, but then it's all about, you know, where the funds going to get appropriated, you know, how are we going to execute, you know, how do we divide this all up versus, man, if you just taken that check, put it towards $5, you know, per lunch, you would have had such an, you know, honest, real, and, you know, immediate impact. Um, and it's not to say obviously what she's doing, uh, she hasn't had an impact as well, but that again, I think is part of the magic of food for thought as it is. It is so simple and yet so extraordinarily impactful. It's it's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I couldn't say it better, and I, I appreciate the way you say it. Yeah. Reed will write your script next Friday <laughs> that you can use when you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you could jump up on the truck and do just fine. <laughs> After I've had some green beer, yeah. Well, um <laughs> You know, so uh, for us, as David was saying, we do have a lot of clientele outside of the market, um, you know, meaning outside of Colorado, but we're we're slowly but surely, and it's a big focus for us starting to build our relationships here in Colorado. And I just know this is one that we're excited to hopefully just be in the early stages of kind of a lasting, you know, partnership uh, where we can be a part of the, you know, the volunteering um, for a good while, but also uh, start you know, cutting some checks your way to, uh, to help out as best we can. You know, we're, we're still in the early stages as a company, but we have big, big dreams when it comes to, you know, what, what we can do on, on the volunteering and, and helping out great, great foundations like food for thought. So really appreciate you coming on, Bob. Yeah. La last thing for sure. me, Bob, and then let us know anything we missed. But, um, when you talked yeah. about, I think it was a 72 schools, how, how much, um, I don't know what that encompasses of the footprint of what you think make that you need to hit in Denver um, or the greater metro area. So if you just talk us through, I guess, like, I, I, just, I can imagine that you're the kind of person that, like, if you covered Denver, then you would move to Fort Collins or Colorado Springs or something. But I'm just wondering, like, how well penetrated are you guys for, for what you, uh, for what you uh, encompass today? Well, I think it's, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a little hard to answer in that, you know, again, our focus is schools that are 95% higher frequently reduced. So I think in, in Denver public schools, we've, we've got that demographic nailed, but then you start to look at, okay, 85, 75, 65% of the kids, we're not doing anything there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can do more there, but that comes with a whole different set of tricks, right? Like, if you're going to go to a 65% Navy school, then how are you going to make sure those 65 out of 100 don't feel stigmatized when the other 35 don't take anything? So, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we've been able to keep our model the same. Um, we are, we've expanded into Adams County. We picked up all of Westminster District 50 during COVID. Um, we added 16 schools up there. We're in four different schools up in Adams County, Commerce City. Um, you know, we, we want to go to Aurora. Uh, we're looking to get over there, assuming we can get their buy-in and then logistically we can get enough infrastructure support to make it happen. So, um, I don't really desire to do, I mean, I can't even picture in my lifetime being able to get, um, you know, to, Fort Collins and Carver Springs, as you say, because I think there's plenty of work to do right here in the time, you know, the time we have to get it done. So that's, that's, I think, where our focus will be. Just wait till we get to your 20-year anniversary and we have you on to, <laughs> to talk about your Fort Collins expansion. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? If they call, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah. Well, uh, is there anything that we missed that we didn't touch on that, that would be important for folks to know? Yeah, just, and then I appreciate it the time so much um I, you know just like i end every friday you know just a couple of things if if your listeners you know we don't have a marketing department so what we're really good at i have a friend in in arkansas now that um, handles our social media we're really good um on the social platforms uh, whether that's linkedin or facebook um what am i missing obviously uh Instagram. all of them Instagram, thank you. Um, if, if, you, if you like what you hear, the only word, the way we spread the word about what we do is via those vehicles. So if you could just like it and share it and tweet it, that type of thing, that would be wildly helpful. Um, you mentioned writing checks, and I appreciate the sentiment of that, but, you know, the, the boots on the ground is more important. Um, this is one of the few organizations, and I'm one of the probably the few people um, that people call me up and say, I want to send you a thousand bucks. I'm like, uh, no, thank you. Like, what do you mean? Like, I want you to come down, you know, and it's selfish because I know if you come down, I'll probably get two grand from you. Um, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I really, we're just not into a bunch of check writers, right? Like I get the sentiment of wanting to write the check, but come see what it's really about. And then let, let that guide where you go with it. So much more important to me than check writing is friends of these kids. And people that will advance the cause by doing things like you're doing for us right now. There is not a price you could put on what you're doing for us right now. No check, and I mean no check, could could equal what this exposure will do for us. Um, we get any any exposure anywhere. It's it's priceless. So my thanks to you for doing that. Um, we need the volunteers. Um, we're always looking for. And you mentioned you know, going into the school and actually getting to, we always need that help. I get 28,000 pounds of food a week that gets lifted into a truck by a bunch of old dudes like me and retired guys and then pushed into the school every single Friday. So it's a, it's a hump to be sure. So we can always use more people 
on the delivery end of things. That starts at six in the morning. We can always use help to that end. The packing starts at seven. We can always use help there. And then, you know, obviously, um, the two last things are, uh, we do one big fundraiser a year. That'll come down this year in June. It's called Rockabilly. It'll be on our website. Um, we've got a really good website, foodforthoughtdenver.org. Um, it's a hundred dollar ticket for all the booze and all the food and all the dancing you can do. And every penny of that, um, will go to the, to the cause. I mean, all of our overhead will be sponsored in by our sponsors. So I'd like to have you be there. And then the last thing is, you know, if you know any wealthy people, I'd sure as hell like to meet them. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and anybody that's got a heart for this thing and got a few bucks, I mean, I'm available somewhere to be. I'll show up and, and, and ask for it. Great. Well, Bob, thank you so much. This is, uh, it's great to have you on and we really appreciate what you do. And, um, yeah, we're just glad to have one very small part of it by showing up on Fridays, but, um, you know, thank you. Thank you. Honored to be here.